Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, as we're continuing through the book of Hebrews. And I don't think we're going to get all the way through chapter 12, uh, just because I want to spend a lot of time on the first part. And it starts off again, let's read verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Powerful verses here. Very powerful. And it starts off with the word therefore, but interesting enough, all the other times where we see the word therefore, it's not the same word that is used here. This word is more emphatic. It's used only one other time in Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 8, when he's talking about the judgment of God coming upon people and therefore just living holy lives. It, it, the writer here is trying to make a point. This is kind of pounding the lectern, if you will. He's trying to just really bring this home. And the therefore is, of course, reminding us of what he has just talked about, which is all the examples, the credentials of faith that we had in chapter 11. In other words, all these people who lived lives not based on what they were getting for the moment, but based on the promise that God had given to them. And we saw that some of them did miraculous things and some of them died, were tortured, not seeing the fulfillment. In fact, none of them saw the fulfillment of what we are able to see now, Christ the Messiah. That the promise was a promise in the future, yet they clung on and held on to that promise of God, even though they didn't see it. They are our heroes. They are our examples. They are steps for us to mimic and follow in. If our fathers lived this way, he points to them and he says, now what about us? Therefore, since we are surrounded by these men, women of faith, that's what the cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I love that he says, let us. He doesn't say, you guys better do it. He says, let us. I, I love it when it's inclusive because we're all in this boat together. We're, we're, all, we're all dealing with the same stuff. We're all dealing with the same things that entangle us and, and we struggle with. And, and this cloud, it's not just observers who are watching us since we're surrounded by these people who are looking at us and are curious, but those who have lived and confirm that what they have lived for is worth living for. In other words, these people have lived and they are the example, they are a testimony that, you know what, it's worth it. Live a life of faith. And then he gives two parts to how we can do this life of faith, how we can live this. 
And one of them, he starts off with the, is the negative, and the later is the positive. And the first and the negative, what I mean is, is things that, well, are negative. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, when he's talking about everything that hinders, hinders what? What does he mean, everything that hinders? Hindering what? Well, what, what has he been talking about? What has been the context of the whole epistle? It, it has been hinders from living a life that trusts in the work of Jesus. Living a life that trusts Jesus alone. You need to get rid of the things that stop you from relying on Jesus for your salvation, for your promise and provision of the future, for what is going to happen to you for your best interests. It's easy to think of things that hinder us and think of, well, yeah, I know, you know, these certain sins, vices, those are the things that hinder us, but we, we need to ask, what is it hindering us from and what is the point that the writer here is making? Because he's talking about that life of faith. He's talking about trying to, to earn our respect from God, talking about going to back to religious traditions. And, and I am surprised, well, I, I guess I'm not surprised, but I am aware so much more of how we tend to do things like this. Where, well, the reason I don't have this is because I'm not good enough. Last night, Karina and I went uh, to a service, and it was a communion service, and Jeff was talking about just the whole Corinthians and, you know, in an unworthy manner and how so many preachers use that to say you would got to earn the right to have communion, and that's the exact opposite of, of what that passage is talking about. It's not about earning it. And I don't know why we have this innate desire to, to want to deserve God's approval. I guess it stems from our human desires for other people's approval, but there has to be a place of recognition that nothing you do will be able to deserve God's approval that the best you can do is still filthy rags. The, the best you can do is way short of what is needed. And so we got to get rid of the things that keep us going to that place, thinking, ah, man, I've got to earn this. I've got to work for this. I've got to, I've, it's about me. You got to get rid of that. Get rid of those things that are hindering you from trusting solely on what Jesus has done and making that applicable and appropriate to your life. Those are the things that would hinder us. Get rid of those things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, the sin, it's, it's singular here. And most of the time when we think of sin our minds, again, go into, oh, I, I can think of sin, there's adultery, you know, there's all these, uh, you know, drunkenness, there's blasphemy, 
Um, those are sins. And we, we go to this place, oh, I've got to get rid of all those bad things in my life. And you see, there we go again. I've got to get rid of the things so I can be good enough. But the sin that is talked about here is the sin that he's been talking about. The whole epistle, it's unbelief. And let's face it, even we as followers of Christ struggle with unbelief. Now we say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, if we believe in Jesus, why do we complain? Why are we so fearful? Why do we doubt? Why do we question God? Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. If God takes care of the birds that are here today and not one of them falls to the ground without father seeing them aren't you worth more than them or the flowers of the field that are beautiful and then taken and thrown into the fire and they are more beautiful than solomon in all his glory if god takes care of them won't he take care of you oh you of little faith and don't well don't we worry Finances are tough. Oh, God. Lord, what have I done wrong? I haven't prayed enough. Oh, God, I, what do I need to do? God, God, why is this happening to me? Don't you love me anymore? Sickness comes. Difficulties. And where do we go? Do we have faith? You see, the sin that so easily besets us is unbelief. It really is. We, we, we're so concerned about all the other things. I gotta quit smoking, I gotta quit drinking, I gotta quit doing that, I gotta, I gotta quit. You know what you need to do is you start believing and don't worry about all those other things. If God is so active and real in your life, all those other things will be taken care of because of the relationship you have with the living God. It's all about that relationship. It's not about changing the things it's about changing the heart so that it trusts in God. It sees him as a reality in your life, active, close, nearby. What does it take to keep us? At the men's Highlander that we went to, and Erwin was speaking, you know, he's talking about how he travels a lot, and he's in places where nobody knows who he is. And there is the ability for temptation to do things that he can get away with because no one sees him. And that there's no accountability group that can keep his heart. Because if he can lie to his wife, he can lie to his accountability group. But what keeps him is his relationship with God. Knowing that this is what and who I am with you. Having an active and living relationship with God a, a life of faith in God, a life that is relying on God, that is free from unbelief, is the key to victory over sin. And so the writer is saying, we're surrounded by these people who lived lives, gave themselves completely to God. They testify to us that it was worth it that it's legit, that we too should live this way. If they've made it, so can we. Because they've lived this life, let's throw off all these things that hinder us, all these doubts, 
all these substitutes for faith. Let's get rid of the unbelief so easily besets us. You see, that's the context of the sin here. And that's something that I would wager we all struggle with at one point, at one time, or another. And it doesn't matter how much God does for us, we seem to struggle with unbelief. Man, I could look back and think of how God answered prayers, and I'm just like, God, you're so faithful. But next week, it's a different story. <laughs> he didn't show up this week. God, why? And we're going to talk about that a little bit later, about the, the dealings and the enduring, those kinds of things. But we have to recognize, first, we've got to get rid of these things that hinder us from trusting completely in God, and we've got to get rid of unbelief. The things that hinder us from living lives that trust in God completely. And we need to see and ask ourselves, where do we experience unbelief? You see, because the reason a person gives in to a temptation, uh, say adultery, is because he doesn't believe that God is enough and his, what God has asked of our lives is enough to satisfy our lives. That there's this idea that, no, there's something to gain from this. And so we really don't believe God at his word, and so we go after this other thing. Or whether it's, you know, to get high and intoxicated. Well, you know, I, I think that there's something to gain. There's a pleasure. There, there's, I'm missing out on something if I don't partake of this, whatever it is. And what we're really doing is not believing God is sufficient that I need this other thing to help supplement my life. I need this other relationship. I need this other narcotic. I need this other, you know, uh, I need to talk or gossip. I, I need to, whatever it is, we covet. Why? Because we don't believe that God is enough. It really goes back to unbelief. It goes back to the lack of faith. And so instead of trying to put a Band-Aid on, on the things, well, I just need to stop this, you know. I need to stop this thing. You know what we really need to do? is have an encounter with the living God that shakes the core of who we are as if God was right there. As if God was right there. And I can remember times thinking, you know, well, that's okay. No one can see me. And God's saying, I see you. And it's like, ah, busted. Yeah, you do. What, what am I thinking? Where are you in my thoughts if I would think that? You're here. And what, how would we live our lives if the reality of Jesus with us all the time was there? And unfortunately, what, what happens to us and how we live our lives so many times is, you know, we, we, if Jesus was right here, we would act as if he was another, you know, person of faith, a Christian. You know, I'm going to say the right things. I'm going to do the right things. You know, praise God. Yes, Amen. You know, praise you, Jesus. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it, we would just kind of put on our best face, you know, our, our best foot forward. We want to impress him. But what happens then when he, you know, everyone else leaves and he, he follows us, you know, into the bedroom. And he follows us, you know, sits on the couch and watches TV with us. And, you know, it's like, oh, you're here still. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'm like, oh, 
well, you know, is there a difference? He already knows what's going on inside. And so we, we have to stop playing the games and start living the life of faith. And that's really the core of what he's getting at here and through these verses. After talking about these things, the negative about, you know, throwing off those things that hinder us and the sin that entangles us, he then moves on to the positive things where he tells us that we are to run the race, run with perseverance the race. I love that perseverance because we all know that that's what it is. This life of faith is not a sprint, it's an endurance. It's the marathon, that's the kind of race it is. And I've never run a marathon, so I don't have a whole lot of you know, application to this thing, but I know what it's like to have to stick with it, to just endure. Again, when we were at the Men's Highlander, after we had our time of football, we had to go and play basketball, and basketball I haven't played basketball in years. And there's a lot of running in basketball. <laughs> and there was a time where I was running, and it's just like I had the ball, and my brain was saying, okay, you know, cut right, and then spin and move left. And I took the step, and, and the spin and move left just didn't come. It was just stopped right there, and it's like I can't go the rest of the way. I didn't have the endurance. I, I didn't have the... The ability, I was out of shape, I was old, I, I'm, you know, 80 pounds more than I should be, you know, I mean, it's just like, I, I can't do this anymore, why, because I don't have the endurance, I don't have the perseverance to make it through there, I got to sub, you know, come in, okay, this is good, life, we can't call in a sub, we have to stick with it, we have to go through it, and we have to maintain this faith in God. And so we have to see this as a, a perseverance, a run that we have to persevere through. And it's a, run, it's a race that is marked out for us. God has a life for us to live. Now, this isn't saying, you know, at the age of 51, this is the turn you're going to make. And at the age of 52, he's not talking about this kind of will of God that you have to find every nick and cranny of what God... It is a life of faith. That's the race that we're running. Because we get so... Uh, what is the race that God... Am I supposed to be married to this person? Am I supposed to... Well, yes, I am. You know, I am already. I, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to have this job? What is the race, God? It's a life of faith. Don't freak yourself out. Okay? Just... Understand, it's a life of trust in God. And I don't know what job it's going to entail. I had a job change at, you know, 48 years of age. You know, I mean, it's like you never know what's going to come around the corner. And he's not talking about every little, you know, detail. He's talking about faith and trust. That's the race. And believe me, that's a big enough one. That one will occupy all of your life. That is the one that is going to be enough for you to have to go through. That's what he's got marked out for you is a life of faith. Trust in God. And you have to have perseverance, see it as a race. I mean, Paul talks about the race a few times, and again, a lot of the things that Paul talks about are so, you could take one and, and put it in here with Hebrews, and that's why a lot of people feel that Paul wrote that, or maybe the writer was just influenced by Paul. But in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says, Do you not know that 
in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, so they do not get a crown that will they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In other words, I know what I'm living for and I'm going to pursue it no matter what. Got to go for it. I'm going to live this life of faith. I'm going to give myself to it completely. And we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 that he did. I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the fight, good fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. I've lived a life of faith and trust in God. That is our race that is our fight. That is what our life is about. Lives of complete trust and reliance on God and what Jesus has done. We are hid in him. We are strengthened by him. We rely completely on him. So this race that is marked out for us, what is it? It's living lives consecrated to God through Jesus until he takes us home until we're done. That's the life that God has marked out for us. A life of faith. A life of trust. A life of interaction with God. And then he tells us that to help us run this race with perseverance, this race that is marked out for us, he says, let us, in verse 2, fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, our ever-present high priest, God who is imprinted in human flesh, the author, the finisher of our faith, we need to keep our focus on him. You know, Dancers, when they do that little thing where they spin around and, and they spin around like a whole bunch of times in one place, the way they do that is they make a single point their focus. In other words, they see that switch on the wall and whenever they spin, they go back and lock to that switch on the wall so that every time they spin, they have a focus. That way they don't get all dizzy and, and you know fall over. I, I don't know this because I've danced. I know this because I, I remember sitting in a dance class, part of a dance class when my daughter was young. They wouldn't let us stay the whole time, which I thought was dumb. But anyway, we sat in that one class and she said, when you do that spin, I want you to fix on something and you fix and you fix. And I noticed that. I mean, I same with ice skaters and those people. You know, how do you spin a thousand times in a second and not just die? <laughs> Have you ever seen it? Those guys, they're sitting there and it's like... Sing. They have a fix. They fix their attention on one specific thing. So every time they spin around, their focus is on one thing. That keeps their equilibrium from going all out of whack. When we go through this life, how do we live a life without getting 
tossed by every change that comes and all the things that pull for our attention and our affection, we have to fix our attention on Jesus. And I love that it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. It doesn't say, fix your eyes on this set of rules. Remember the Ten Commandments. Think about these things that you're supposed to do and, and not do. It's fix your eyes on this person, Jesus. And that's what the whole epistle has been talking about. Jesus, the one who's better than the angels. The one who is greater than Moses. The one whose priesthood is after Melchizedek and not that of Aaron. The one who has a better way. Jesus. Fix your eyes, your attention on him. The person. Why the person? Why not on the things Jesus said? Because our faith isn't in a religion. It is in the person of Jesus Christ who is alive, who by his Holy Spirit interacts with us. It is the new covenant God is writing within our own hearts and in our own minds. The relationship is dynamic. It's active. It's alive. It is taking place and it's supposed to be taking place always, constantly. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And, and I love that our faith is not in a book or writings. It's in a person. It's not in rules and regulations. It's in the Son of God. And so we can see the will of God lived out through the person of Jesus. And we have enough information to be able to understand how God wants us to live. And he doesn't give us the minute details, but he gives us enough information and he gives us the person of Jesus who was our example. He was our example. I got a text message from a young man today. He, he was, he's up at a high school camp and he's one of the counselors at the camp and he sent me a text message and he said, what did Jesus love the most? At first I was like, that's an interesting question. I said, I'm not, I'm not sure. And he said, I just heard a study and it said something about what Jesus loves the most. What do you think? And I, I'm like, I'm not sure I understand. And then he sent back a text saying, you know, what do you think Jesus loves the most? And I thought, wow. And, and I thought for a second, you know, oh, I, I'm thinking of all these scriptures. And I thought Jesus was our example. And he, what he told us to do is what he himself did. Jesus told us that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what he did. That's what we do. And so I, I sent that back to him. I said, well, this is, Jesus is our example. This is what he, he told us. This is what we do. That's my, my thought. I felt like I was a test or something. You know? I was like, oh, no. I gave the wrong answer. And it was interesting because he said, well, I was curious because the pastor who was speaking said that what Jesus loved most was himself and glorifying God. And that sounds like a nice religious answer, but you see, it's really about Jesus. It's really about who he is and what he did. And what did he do? He loved the Father and he loved us. He gave himself for us. 
It really was about that relationship. And so instead of breaking it down and, and trying to, you know, make a theological discourse about how we are to live so that we can live a right life, what we need to do is see Jesus. Fix our eyes on him. Focus on him. He is our high priest. And it says that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. You see, he is the, the author, he's the finisher, he is the object, and he is the inspiration. And he is what we fix our attention in because not only is he the object of our faith, but he is the inspiration of our faith. Our faith is because of him. Our faith is in him. Our faith is through him. Our faith is because of him. And when it says the finisher or the, the one who is going to complete our faith, it's he finished, or he's the finisher of our faith by, by one, his death on the cross when he said it is finished. He, he completed what we have faith in. He's the finisher of our faith by his resurrection from the dead. He's the finisher of our faith by his working in us, Philippians 1.6. He who began a work will complete the work until he returns. And so it has this idea of this active and dynamic relationship that is taking place with Jesus. He is the author, the finisher of our faith. He is who we put trust in. He is who we rely on. He is what we fix our attention on. He is our obsession. It's what this is about. This life of faith is about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he has done for us so that we can have this relationship with God. And then he tells us who endured Fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, there, remember, was a stigma about the Messiah. The whole idea of the book of Hebrews is these Hebrew Christians are like, you know what? We were expecting more from the Messiah than this. We're still under the oppression of Rome. It's been years now. We know he rose from the dead, but we were expecting him to come back pretty quick, and it's been... He hasn't come back yet, and we see persecution, and we don't see things moving forward like we would like to. Isn't that how we see our lives sometimes, God? You know, I come to know you, Jesus, and this isn't playing out like I thought it would. Um, and so I'm wondering, maybe there, there's something else. It, it's not what I expected to be, and the cross was a stigma. The stigma of the cross was a struggle to these Hebrew Christians. Their Messiah had died on a hated Roman cross as a criminal. That's, that didn't fit into their framework. It was a shame. And, and so the idea of he endured this shame. He was willing to go to this length and endure the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God why? Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I love that verse 3. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Now consider him. 
consider him. We, we must remember that Jesus, again, is our example. He is the one we trust in. He is the one we follow after. And here is Jesus, just like those in chapter 11 who had faith in something that they did not yet see. Jesus put himself on a cross, enduring the shame. You think you're enduring something by putting faith in Jesus who died on a cross? What do you think he had to go through? You think you got it bad? You think you've got it rough? Your Messiah endured the shame completely. And he did it for you. He endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, if he did it, you can do it too. He's your example. Follow in, your, in his steps. And then he, he takes us further. You see, because he's presenting to them the fix and focus of their attention. He's, he's presenting to them that they have to rely completely on Jesus. And then he's going to deal with the circumstances that they are dealing with. Verse 4, he says, In your struggle against sin, sin, what is sin he talking about here? Unbelief. In your struggle against sin and not having faith in Christ, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Ouch. You see, you haven't gone through that much. Jesus went to the cross. You haven't resisted and dealt with these kinds of things. In your struggle, you haven't had to deal with this. It's a kind of slap in the face when you compare it to what Jesus just endured. And the whole idea, again, is that in your struggle against wondering what to believe in your faith and having trust in Jesus, you haven't dealt with persecution. He did. In verse 5, it says, and, you have not, and have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Some translations say he scourges every son whom he receives. And so here is this scriptural basis and he's, understand, he's trying to bring understanding to them that look at this is what it's about. Did you forget what God said? You, you thought that living this life of, of faith in the Messiah coming was going to be a life that would get you into bliss? Don't you remember what it says? That God was going to discipline? That God was going to chasten? That there would be rebuke? That he would punish the sons that he receives? Do you think you're going to escape that? And verse 7, boy, this is, this is like a light bulb going off. Endure hardship as discipline. Did you hear that? Endure hardship as discipline. In other words, don't just think, well, what I'm going through is just hard times. Think of what you're going through as God at work in your life. Endure hardship as discipline. Doesn't that change everything? If everything I go through is discipline instead of just, oh well, I'm just going through hard times. You see, he goes on and he says, God is treating you as sons. Now that's an amazing thing. 
that God would deal with us as children for what son is not disciplined by his father. In other words, what you're going through isn't for no reason. There is a purpose. Now, go back to endure hardship as discipline. Whatever you are going through, think of it as God at work. Disciplining. Now, the idea of discipline for us, it, it has this idea of punishment. But he goes on and he says, if in verse 8, you are not disciplined, and everyone goes through discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you would see your lives connected to God, if you would see your eyes in your lives in eyes of faith that you belong to God that your life is leaning trusting connected to God then you would endure hardship with the understanding that God is at work in every avenue of my life every circumstance to bring about something for me that's why Paul could say we know that all things work together for the good to those who are who love God and have been called according to his purpose. That's why James could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into temptations. I, I, we see, read those things and we think, you're crazy, man. I'll just skip to the next verse because, man, I don't get that. I don't, I don't know how that's supposed to apply to my life. But you see, if you endure hardship as the work of God in your life, going to shape and perfect you till he has perfected you to what he wants you to be, it takes on a whole different picture. It, it, it produces something that's better. And, and it, he brings human understanding. You've had fathers who have had to discipline you. As a father, I've had to discipline my kids. Why? Just because I'm mad? Well, sometimes, but God does it for our good. God does it because it's for our best. And if we understand that, it doesn't seem pleasant. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. It's painful. And the writer calls it like it is. It's painful. But if you will endure it as discipline, it will change everything. To endure hardship as discipline, you have to have faith that you belong to God and He is not going to allow anything in your life that he will not work for the good that he will not shape you by that he will not help to conform you to what to holiness harvest of righteousness he, he's trying to develop within us verse 10 it says our fathers discipline us for a little time as they thought best but god disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness and he's going to be working a harvest of righteousness 
and peace for those who are trained by it. That means if we allow this work to take place in our lives, that our lives will actually have peace even when we endure hardship. Why? Because I have a father. And he is at work in everything in my life. I have peace knowing I belong to him. Therefore, verse 12, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. In other words, snap out of it. Recognize what's going on here. Recognize what Jesus did. Recognize that we identify with him. And instead of being cast down, oh no, our, our Messiah was crucified on the cross. Man, it's going to be tough for us. I don't know, I guess we're just going to be stuck here and I don't know what our life has of... Strengthen your feeble arms, your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. In other words, get the right perspective. See your life as being a child of God, a son or a daughter. See hardship as being the work of God in your life. Recognize that Jesus endured the cross because he knew what was going to benefit for you He's given you an example so that you don't lose heart when you go through difficult things. He did, you will. Jesus said the same thing. And so we need to take these things and adapt them to our lives so that we don't have these ups and downs. Oh, God loves me. Oh, God doesn't love me. Oh, things are good. Things are bad. I belong to God. Everything in my life is opportunity for me to grow close to him for opportunity for him to work and shape me to be what he desires to me to make me holy to make me complete to make me perfect even as he is perfect because every son and daughter that he has he chastens he will not let you get away with it. He is going to work in your life till he cuts out the things that need to be cutting out, till he shapes and breaks you to the place where you need to be completely dependent on him. And when that takes place, it'll produce righteousness in your life and you will have peace. Who wants peace? We all need it. We all need it. Verse 14. Where we get to here. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Peace with people are an important aspect of our life. Romans 12, 18, Paul wrote and says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And, and this is connected, verse 14 is actually connected to what he's just talked about, about strengthening your feeble arms, snapping out of it and getting right with those who you're struggling with. In other words, you're going through some difficult things, you know what? Make things right. 
Live at peace. Make, make things right with those who are around you. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Now, peace sought must be compatible with holiness. In other words, you can't compromise holiness just to make peace. Well, I just need to make peace with them, so I'm going to do something I shouldn't. I'm going to lie. I'm going to be deceitful because that's what they want. No, it's to work with holiness. As much lies within you still depends on that other person. You can only make peace if that person wants peace. But as much as you can, try and make that peace. And it's got to be compatible with holiness. And holiness is something that we are made through Christ, who's the author, the finisher of our faith. Holiness, its pursuit, obtaining it, and its continual maintenance is our obligation. It is something that we are at work continually doing. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, it's not like, well, so you better earn your holiness. No, it was given to us by Christ. But you see, the holiness of Christ encompasses a life. When we receive Christ, we are a part of him and he a part of us. And he is expecting us to live lives of peace with people. He's expecting us to live like he lived. Now, there were some people that Christ didn't have peace with, the Pharisees. He was at odds against them. Why? Because he was holy. And he could not live a life of unity with someone who was in opposition to God. And they were. And so our lives are the same thing. We have to live at peace with those around us, but there's going to be friction with some people. With Jesus, it was the religious people. We might find it to be the same thing. have more difficulty sometimes with other people of faith than I do with people who aren't of faith. That's an interesting thing. Um, anyway, he goes on and he tells them, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Interesting words. Um, the idea of missing the grace of God is not falling away from or backsliding, but coming short or missing. The danger is not so much in open rebellion as in almost obedience. Do you understand? It's like it's not that you're rebelling against it, it's just you're not completely obeying it. It's a convenient Christianity. It's a Christianity that is comfortable. A Christianity that allows you to, to live your own life still without the influence and, and God pushing you to places that are uncomfortable like living at peace with all people, like extending yourselves to others, like giving of yourselves to others. And this idea, don't, don't think that these things aren't connected. Don't think that your life of faith, your living at peace with others and holiness is not all intertwined. And don't think you can live a holy life and not have a good relationship with other people. You, you can't do it. He who loves God will love his brother also, John tells us in 1 John. So don't tell me you love God who you haven't seen, but you hate your brother who you've seen. You have to have that connection. And that's why Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, the, the man who asked him, what's the greatest commandment? He only asked him for one commandment, but Jesus gave him two. Why? Because they go together. 
They're required. They're both required. And so this idea of missing the grace of God is saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but I don't have to deal with my brothers and sisters. I don't have to make those paths straight. I can stay lame, unable to walk. I don't want to push into that place of discomfort. I'll have my relationship with God and I'll live in my little bubble, but when it comes to dealing with you people, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You're, you're falling short. You're missing the grace of God. And that's the danger that he's talking about there. It's not open rebellion. It's near obedience. And notice what he says after that in verse 15. Misses the grace of God that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness. Bitterness will color our entire perspective. Bitterness will affect our relationship with God. Make no mistake about it. Think about your conversations, because this is convicting, at least it is for me, and think about how much you complain about other people. And ask yourself if you're bitter about those things. And, you know, these are, this is one of the sins that we neglect. This is one of the sins that we justify. Oh, it's easy to talk about, you know, the fornication, which we'll talk about later on. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight, but... Or it's easy to talk about, you know, drunkenness, and it's easy to talk about lying, and it's easy to talk about things that we see, but... We don't talk about bitterness. And you see, bitterness will trouble and defile a lot of people. Bitterness is bad news. It will pollute our hearts. And make no mistake about it, if we are bitter towards people, then it will reflect our relationship with God. And that's what John talked about. You can't Love God and not love your brother also. You can't do it. And so we have to deal with this area because there are people who are going to rub us wrong. There are people who are going to deal with us in a way and it doesn't mean that we like what they do. Hey, that person lies about me. <laughs> I love you. It, it, it doesn't mean we don't deal with the conflict that is there. But we don't allow that bitterness to be our focus and to consume us. And we don't live a life of a victim, weak, lame. Man, those people, they did me wrong. Man, I'm, I, can't, I can't believe it. Remember, endure hardship as discipline. So even when they're dealing wrong with you, I endure hardship as discipline. They might be dealing wrong with me, but God is dealing right with me. Remember what Joseph said about his brothers? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. How can you say that? Because he had the right perspective. He was living a life of faith. He was living a life that saw God as interactive in everything that he did. And if he didn't, bitterness would have, when his brothers came up there, <laughs> yeah, you guys, you remember what you did? You're going to jail. You're staying there. But instead, he showed them mercy. Why? Because he saw God at work in his life. They were afraid. 
he dealt with it. He didn't allow bitterness to consume him. If we don't deal with bitterness, it will consume us. And this is one of those areas where, again, we can really see where we're at. And, and just do that. I was doing a mental little, you know, recording of my life or just a, you know, kind of review of the things that I've been in. I was thinking, how many times have I complained and talked about other people in a negative way? And it doesn't matter who it is. And it could be people that have done you wrong. Am I allowing bitterness to come in? Am I allowing bitterness to be part of my conversation? And I have to confess, I, I, there's way too many times. And so every time you talk bad about someone or you're showing bitterness, think about it. Because if not, your life will just, that will be what it's about. It'll be about talking about, oh, this person this and this person that and that church this and this person this. And pretty soon it will trouble and defile a lot of people. And we'll find, how are we encouraging people? How are we strengthening them by putting people down? You can't do it. And it does no good. It does no good. And so we got to be careful because sometimes you have to deal with an area of wrongdoing. Paul said this, you know, I forget the guy's name, the, the blacksmith that did me much harm. He had no problem calling things out. This person erred concerning the faith, and they're doing this for gain. He had no problem talking about people who did things wrong, but he didn't live that victim mentality, and his life wasn't about, man, those people, I'm going to get them. I can't believe those people. He didn't focus on the bit. He didn't allow bitterness to grow up within him. And we need to be careful we don't do the same thing because it's real easy to do, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's you know people at work, uh, whether it's ministry and people at church, you know, pastors, um, doesn't matter. We can get bitter. We can get bitter. And it's a warning for us. And this warning comes in this place. It, it's not cohesive with a life of faith. Why don't we stop there and we'll finish the rest of the chapter next week. And then we've got one week after that where we'll conclude the final exhortation um, of Hebrews. So let's stop there and let's pray. Father, there is such dynamics in living a life of faith and what that means. It, it makes us your children, Lord. It, it brings us into your family. Without faith, we've, we've read that it's impossible to please you and, and we can't live lives of faith and not recognize, Lord, that you are at work within our lives constantly. Father, that you are involved in every area of our lives, that we need to see our lives in that perspective. Lord, that we would put aside that sin of unbelief and all those things that would hinder us from trusting in you completely. And Lord, I pray that we would take Jesus as our example and consider him, Lord, what, what he did, he did as an example for us of how we are to live a life completely trusting in you so much that it, he went to the cross. 
And if he's willing to do that because it's worth it, Lord, what are we willing to do that's worth the hardship, the shame? God, help us to see the right perspective and help us to live lives that are devoted to you completely. Help us to put away just the the feeble arms, the weak knees. Help us to not be victims, but to see all hardship as discipline. To see your hand at work in our lives, that you have called us your children. Oh my gosh, that, that's amazing. That the God of heaven and earth sees me as his child and is working everything out to accomplish holiness, righteousness in me. God, help us to run this race, this life with perseverance. May we not be weary. May we be devoted to you. And Lord, that will bring us peace. That will bring us joy. That will allow our lives to be examples of who you are in the midst of whatever we go through. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Bless everyone here, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.